Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, folks. This is Marshall Poe, the regular host of New Books in History. I'm taking a little break this week, and I've asked Bob Wintermute, who is one of the regular hosts of New Books in Military History, to stand in for me. I'm sure that he'll do a wonderful job, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy his interview. I will be back next week. Take care. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Welcome to New Books in History. Each week we select an interesting book on a historical topic and interview the author. This week we are speaking with Sally Ninham about her recent book, A Cohort of Pioneers, Australian Postgraduate Students and American Postgraduate Degrees, 1949-1964. Ninham's book is in part related to her own family's experiences as young professionals studying in the United States after the Second World War. The discovery of a cache of family letters led her to consider how and why the first generations of Australians to study in the United States did so, and how the experience transformed their individual outlooks and helped shape Australia's own higher education system and politics in subsequent decades. The experiences and results turned out to be far more dramatic than one might think, as the personal encounter with American culture and higher education exposed these budding intellectuals to the prospect of a future Australia less dependent upon the United Kingdom for its cultural, social, and ultimately political identity. In the end, Ninham notes that the experiences of these first cohorts of postgraduate students were a model of Cold War-era American soft diplomacy and went a long way towards cementing relations between the two nations. The book, which is built on an impressive body of oral history interviews, personal letters, and memoirs from over 100 persons representing the pinnacle of Australian science and humanities, is both an important cultural document and a very readable and at times personable intellectual history. Today we're talking with Sally Ninham about her book, A Cohort of Pioneers, Australian Postgraduate Students and American Postgraduate Degrees, 1949-1964. Now, for the record, I met Sally this past summer at the University of California in Berkeley's Regional Oral History organization workshop. There I learned more about her project and obtained a copy of her book, which I think is fascinating. Um, how are you, Sally? Uh, really well, thanks, Bob. Thank you for asking me along to the program. Sally, can you say a few words about yourself and how you chose to pursue this project? Yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a writer at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and I got involved in the program, uh, in this project after my mother died. She left me a large cachet of handwritten letters 
Um, she was the wife of an Australian postgraduate student who had completed postgraduate education in the United States in the 1950s. And she wrote home to her mother in Australia at least twice a week for a period of about four years. And her letters told a story about the importance of that experience, I would say, um, and I saw it as a story that was important to understandings of Australian social and intellectual growth and development after that time. So I began pursuing other Australian uh, Australian professionals who had completed postgraduate education in the States at the same time as they did. You know, for the very start of the book, you describe Australia immediately after the Second World War as a place that was still really tied to Great Britain through its colonial and imperial ties. And I think that, well, at least to many Americans who've grown up or have, have come to ha uh, obtain a um, specific image of Australia, they're rather su would be surprised to learn that Australian identity and opportunity was so restrained by its imperial relationship. Yeah, well... Australia in that immediate post-Second World War time was a very British place and it was a pretty quiet place. Um, Australians were 98% British before the Second World War. It was only natural for a country with those kind of beginnings to have a strong allegiance um, to England. We were born out of the heart of the empire. So um, from the general Australian point of view, Britain was the height of all things that Australians aspired to be. Um, that was an unquestioned fact, I'd say. Universities um, in Australia had been modelled on their Oxbridge counterparts in the UK. Um, they maintained intense rivalries between them. Um, and only a small percentage attended university. Um, those who went on to complete higher honours or graduate education were handpicked by senior mentors who recommended that they go to the UK as well which completed a circle of deference to British precedent and British intellectual traditions and ideas about status and promotion that reinforced the notion um, that you really had to go to the UK to get a higher education. Okay. Well, what did the United States represent to young Australians in the pre-war or in a post-war era? Look, the, the United States was a pretty pretty foreign entity to Australians in that immediate time until these Australians returned from their postgraduate education. It, it was, um, in many ways, it was the unknown. Uh, people described it as being, um, well, yeah, very foreign, but very wealthy, a little bit dangerous. They were suspicious of it. I think Australians really didn't know very much about the kind of place that the US was before they left and they certainly described their decision to go as in terms of stepping into the unknown. Mm. Mm. Well, what was the academic climate like in Australia in the 1940s and 50s? Well, as I said, it was pretty small. There was only, there was only uh, a very small percentage that went to university. They generally came from um, private schools that had been modelled on, on British systems of high school education, I suppose you could say. Um, they went on to universities that had been modelled on Oxbridge counterparts in the UK. Um, 
only a very, very small number of those then went on to graduate education and they were sent, they were sent to the UK. So, um, university, the university scene was pretty tiny. There was no PhD programs here. Um, there were some master's programs that were developing. Um, some would say that in some areas they were established, but it really wasn't possible to do a PhD here. Um, even a fairly mediocre one in the sciences until the early 50s and um, for economics at Sydney University it wasn't until the mid-50s, for the arts until the late 50s and then in that situation the, the graduate programs are pretty immature and undeveloped. Um, they were just beginning to emerge really and, and they were based on what people could, could bring back from the UK. Right. So I, I guess it's the picture on your painting is of a, a system in which England not only was the, the intellectual touchstone for Australian academics, but it was rather like the status requirement that they needed to work in Australia as well, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Really, you didn't really have much of a hope in a senior position in Australia unless you completed a, a postgraduate degree in the UK. Um, there was very little confidence here in social and intellectual spheres. Uh, spheres. Um, and in, in general, um, Australia, or the UK really represented the height of everything that Australians wanted to be. So, um, and I'm, it was even to the point where Australians identified with British culture and with an Australian conception of definition, definitions of social status that they believed were defined by British norms to the exclusion of Australian cultural and social traditions and Australian status, de status definitions. So really, um, yeah, the UK was, was everything that Australians aspired to be. Hmm. How selective were the British schools? Well, they were pretty selective. Um, they took the best and the brightest, but then only the best and the brightest really progressed to that level in Australia anyway. Only a very small percentage went on to that level of education. So it was assumed that if you did, you would go to the UK and that there would be an opportunity to do so, except if you were a woman, perhaps. Most of the scholarship opportunities really were reserved for men. The Rhodes Scholarship wasn't available, for example, for women until the mid-1970s. Um, some women's colleges in the UK offered scholarship opportunities, but only from time to time. Um, so there were opportunities there. More opportunities became available after the war um, with Commonwealth scholarship schemes um, from the Australian end as well, funding was provided for Australians to go to the UK. But the scholarships as well were divided up amongst, you know, all of the dominions of the UK. So that that made it pretty competitive to go. And the, those who wanted to go, um, of those who wanted to go, there weren't scholarships for all of them. Mm -hmm. Let's step back a second. Yeah, I'm thinking about the about the American program, the Fulbright Act of 1946, and the initiative to bring Australians across the Pacific to study in American universities. Can you speak about how the, the Fulbright program and, indeed, other corporate philanthropic initiatives that were taking place at the same time, how these were marketed and promoted in Australia? 
Yeah, look, um, the American Institute for International Education was doing a pretty good job of advertising scholarships to the US at the, at the time, but at the same time there was no internet, right? So Australian students um, came to know about scholarship opportunities to the US in a pretty haphazard way, I would say. Um, some found flyers hanging on student notice boards, for example. Others attended lectures and heard about them there. Some were told to go by senior mentors who had gone before them. Um, that wasn't a very common occurrence when people first started going to the States, obviously, because the, uh, generally the intention was to send graduates to the UK. Others learned about opportunities, um, and sometimes they were guaranteed positions by meeting mentors who were on tour in Australia, courtesy of the Fulbright program. There were a number who um, reflected in interview on chance meetings that they had with visiting um, professors, um, particularly in the sciences, who were doing tours advertising the, the foreign scholarship scheme. So um, while the, the foreign scholarships were an intentional program, it, it wasn't that easy to find out about them in a system where everybody was looking to the UK for scholarships. Mm -hmm. You know, in comparison with the British or the English schools, how selective and restrictive were the American programs? Well, the American programs were, were very, very generous. Um, there was a huge amount of money being uh, put into foreign student programs through Fulbright and through the Smith and Monk from federal government from the U.S. federal government. There was also a huge amount of money going in through philanthropic bodies. It was the sheer scale of that financial investment that made an, a, a huge number and array of foreign student scholarship opportunities available to foreign students, not just Australians. Mm -hmm. So um, while they were selective in terms of academic merit, um, there was a, a, a far greater number available. So there were possibilities there that simply weren't possible elsewhere. To what extent were the American programs, do you think, politicized by the cultural dynamics of the Cold War? Well, in 1947, the Washington Sunday Star crowned the U.S. as the education capital of the world. Mm -hmm. um, student programs were very much embraced by Cold War ideology makers, um, the U.S. government saw them as, as an opportunity to spread the word about the values of American do democracy. Um, but this is, it was very much behind, the impetus behind federal government involvement in graduate education after the establishment of the Fulbright Scheme, which was, by comparison, um, driven by notions of inclusion, academic excellence, uh, the pursuit of peace following the devastation of the Second World War. The Cold War, you know, Congressman John David Lodge said the important thing is to bring foreigners here and work them over. Um, a, another quote from Kendrick Marshall was that if the destiny of the American people is to be given the opportunity to serve the world through its educational means, then destiny needs a little shove. There was a, a definite program from, from the U.S. government to bring foreign students in and to expose them to the benefits of American democracy at the time. There's no doubt about that. In the end, though, I think it w there was an, it was an admiration and respect for American altruism that the Australians brought back with them to Australia 
Um, I think that Bill Fulbright won that tug of war between the two. Mm-hmm. None of my cohorts felt that they were being unduly influenced to think in any particular way. Rather, it was an encouragement to think for themselves and to believe in their own power to think for themselves that they valued from their experience the most. So um, while the federal government got involved in providing foreign student scholarships, in creating a five-year plan to bring foreign students in, to work them over, as um, John Davis Lodge had said, ultimately the effect was certainly an admiration for American democracy, but not a sense that they'd been politicized in, in any particular direction. Was it an admiration that put them at odds with their hitherto British identity? Oh, there was definitely a clash there when they returned. Um, people who hadn't been exposed to that American altruism had no conception of it. They had no conception of of the sense of possibility of um, the work ethic of the intense commitment to to the nurturing of ideas that these these Australians have got from the US. I mean, in, in many cases, their PhDs weren't even recognised in Australia when they returned, oh. when, the, when the first group returned. So um, there was a, there was a real clash there. How important was higher education to Australian society in the 1950s? I mean, I, I, I imagine there was a response similar to that in the United States with the GI Bill opening up education for an entire generation. That was definitely the case here as well. Um, we'd had government programs that have done some serious investigation in, in the needs of the extensive higher education programs for Australians, for national economic growth, for scientific growth, um, for post-war development. It, it was, there was, def- you know, very much a temporal link there between what was going on in Australia and, and in the US. Possibly it was happening worldwide. Um, we had a huge influx of undergraduate students into universities. That in itself became a problem for graduate programs because um, universities were bursting at the seams. It wasn't until the 1960s that a number of new universities were created, which provided space for undergraduates. Um, but ultimately, in terms of my work, what it did was put... Uh, graduate students or people who were pursuing higher degrees under pressure to teach as opposed to complete research. And because the graduate programs were so immature, there were few graduate students in Australia mm-hmm. to, to provide those teaching opportunities for undergraduate education. So the whole system was under stress. How did new arrivals to the to American universities respond to the quality level of education in the United States compared to that back in Australia. Did they recognize a difference? Uh, look, I think on a personal level, the U.S. experience was life-changing, um, particularly in terms of the academic experience. Um, they came across courses, disciplines, areas of of study and investigation that they hadn't even heard of before. Many changed the direction of their studies as a result. The way in which the PhD was conducted in the United States was and is very different to how it's conducted in Australia. They had to deal with coursework, which they wouldn't have to do in Australia. In Australia, we complete a, a thesis alone, a large, a large piece of work. 
Um, in the US, they had to complete courses in subject areas they hadn't done before. Um, they had to complete a foreign language component and they had to take part in oral exams. Um, many failed those on their first time round. They told some very funny stories of, of showing up and going completely blank because they'd never had to think on their feet before. Um, that component was, was really very difficult. Um, and very challenging, but liberating too, in that it gave them skills and exposed them to new areas that they hadn't seen before and that were in enormously beneficial when they returned to Australia. Mm -hmm. This may sound like an obvious question, but what was the response of Australians to their experiences with American culture and society in the 1950s and 60s? The experience of return for many was, in, in the, the initial group certainly was devastating. Australians were very suspicious of, of the American experience. Um, there was a bit of a chip on the shoulder mentality often and um, a rejection of, of their experience because it was um, unusual and different. I think in professional spheres, um, the story is quite different, but if, uh, it depend, if that depends on timing, on the sphere that they returned to. Um, but on personal levels, many of them felt rejected by friends and family when they came back, um, if only because they could not communicate the experience that they've had in the States to people who were here. It was so different to what um, people here knew that they, they couldn't communicate the extent of um, exposure that they'd had to new ways of thinking, to... Um, the degree of American energy. Um, in well, I'm thinking too. I mean, America. just the the commodification of American culture must have been tremendous. Well, if if you're talking about the modernization of the 1950s, that blew them away. They they couldn't believe um, the way in which Americans lived, the the extent of wealth, the extent of what was essentially luxury to Australians who'd gone to the States at a time that Australia was still at the tail end of rationing. You know, um, women here were still boiling up the clothes in the backyard in a copper, big copper pot. You know, in the States, they arrived to washing machines, to televisions, to to uh, fancy cars, supermarkets, big freeways. That was incredibly exciting for Australians. And, and it was it was the kind of thing they hadn't seen before. It's like going to Disneyland for the first time, you know. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, I'm sure it was. You know, it's one thing that you have a great picture in your book. I, I think it's actually your your family's journey across the Pennsylvania Turnpike in their car and the comments about just how wide open and big the United States was. I wouldn't think that would have been an issue for an Australian who also lives in a country of big spaces. Well, that's true. Australia is a really, really big place. Um, and there's a lot of space between each town. You know, you can drive here for hours and hours and see nothing if you go through Western Australia. But I think um, it's Australia is largely desert. I think what you're dealing with in the States was just this enormous expanse of, of um, cultivated and cultivatable area of progress, of development, of growth, of... Um, that you just didn't see here. Australia was a very small place. You had to drive on a dirt road to get from one side of the country to the other. 
The US was manned by massive freeways already at that time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, they were very different areas. You know, I can't imagine that they viewed their entire experience through, and how do you describe it, rose-tinted lenses maybe. I mean, you know, this is a group of outsiders with a privileged access to American elites visiting at a time when the liberal elite consensus is under attack by you know, McCarthyism and that form of populism. Also, the issues associated with the civil rights movement, which would have been, I imagine, something alien to Australians, or, or different, at least, Australians. Um, how did these experiences affect the group? Did, did, was there any kind of backlash or response to the darker side of American society that they witnessed? Look, I think the fact that they left it behind, um, everything, they, they were able to take what they wanted from their experience. Those who went in the 1950s, um, as we've said, were impressed by American modernization, but they, they were also affected by the internal politics of the time. As you said, McCarthy and his assaults on the academy, for example, some of them perceived those assaults to be terrible. Others uh, were in a position to view them as ridiculous. Um, those who went later after Sputnik returned with very different impressions. Um, and, of course, their experience was of the heyday of American universities, as you said, and, and that was terribly exciting. Um, and alongside that, it was also a time of great civil unrest, protest and change. Mm-hmm. Um, but Australians were very impressed by that. Those on the East Coast were heavily impressed by federal politics. Others remembered Kennedy, um, either his good looks or his commitment to graduate programs or both. Um, some were heavily influenced by civil rights process, uh, protests. Uh, a number took part in the freedom rights. Mm-hmm. And um, later when they returned to Australia, they attempt, attempted to incorporate some of those protest actions here. They set up a freedom ride to arouse interest in Australian Aboriginal rights. Um, and then, of course, Vietnam loomed large, and a number took part in anti-Vietnam moratoriums too. Right. In a sense, in a sense, um, it wasn't so much that they that they saw America through rose-coloured glasses, but that it politicised them. Um, it gave them a sense um, of the power of grassroots politics, the importance of involvement and awareness of politics, which they didn't have before they left. They had a new understanding of their own potential to influence what was going on around them. And and that's a very, very positive energy um, that despite the terrible things that in many ways were going on in the States at the time for a lot of people, um, that was what they were able to take away with them. Did they experience any pushback or, or jealousy in the part of Australians who didn't have the, the benefits of their experience? Look, I'm not really sure. I can only say that many clashed with their environments when they returned. Um, they they weren't promoted to senior positions initially until their experience was recognised and valued in Australian circles. Um, their counterparts or their colleagues who had been educated in the UK um, did tend to, some said, did tend to congregate together, did tend to promote one another ahead of others who'd been educated in the US. 
um, for a while until the American experience became recognised. And that happened once Australians returned to take up um, senior positions in the new universities. Um, uh, there was a great wave of new university creation in the, in the middle of the 1960s. And those who came back from the States around that time were directed into positions of leadership within those universities and naturally incorporated American methods and models to teach undergraduates and to run graduate programs. They sent their own students to the States um, to the same places where they had done graduate education to complete a circle that incorporated um, a new perspective, a new awareness of, of the United States. And, and by then, that um, rejection was finished. But certainly, uh, some described a sense of having been rejected when they returned initially. Mm-hmm. What about for women graduate students? How many women took advantage of the opportunity to go to the United States? The records aren't, aren't complete. I only interviewed a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, of my hundred, um, there were perhaps maybe ten who mm-hmm. had uh, taken up opportunities to go to the States. Some in the absence of opportunities to go to the UK, others because there had been an expectation that once they got to the UK, they would complete a second undergraduate degree to make them eligible to complete postgraduate education in the UK. Their, their um, undergraduate degrees from Australia weren't accepted? No. That was often the case that Australians would go to the UK and then be expected to repeat the undergraduate degree and then do the postgraduate um, training as well. So that kept them away from graduate programs in Australia for even longer. And and that was definitely a reason to go to the States if they wanted to come back to Australia and give back to or establish themselves here. Um, That was part of the problem with, with the degree in the UK as well, that Australians weren't only expected to go to the UK, but they were expected to complete, in many cases, an undergraduate degree first. And and then on top of that, the best and brightest were often poached by British universities so that they weren't able to return to give their expertise to systems here. So our our graduate system remained um, immature and undeveloped. So for women, um, the US definitely provided opportunities. It provided... It was particularly special to states as well because uh, for a long time there had been American colleges um, that had been set up purely for women mm-hmm. in the United States with a specific um, that were, were applied specifically to women's interests um, and that was very appealing to women who were interested in uh, children's behavioural psychology, for example. Again, as with other areas, there were fields of study and interest that um, hadn't even been considered of, considered yet here. And so arriving in the States was terribly exciting for women who found that there were fields of study, coursework, again, as part of the PhD program, that, that allowed them to explore completely new, new fields. Mm. What about the experience of the family members who accompanied their, the cohort from Australia? How were they affected well, by the experience? Well, in every case, um, they were women. They, they were housewives who were expected to accompany their, their husbands. Um, and in every case, uh, 
bar one, I think, they were politicised by their experience in the same way that their their husbands were. Um, they felt that they were empowered, that they learnt new ways to raise their children that they hadn't been aware of before they left. Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, they felt that their own intellectual yearnings had been met by the experience they had in the USA. They were similarly to their husbands. They were exposed to foreign students, um, to their wives, to new cultures, to the USA, um, and that was very fulfilling. Again, it was a time in their lives that was seminal for their ongoing functioning as adults, and the experience became part of the scaffolding of who they were as mothers and wives, and it became as well part of the modus operandi of their families when they returned to Australia. But, you know, the US became part of their worldview. And look, it really wasn't part of the worldview for most Australian housewives at the time. You know, one of the key parts of your study that I find fascinating is the premise that, you know, at the start of the relationship, the American program itself was rooted in the idea that it was going to highlight the implied superiority of American values within the Cold War context. I mean, it it seems in a way as as though it's a form of neo-imperialism, replacing one patron with another. Was that recognized or felt by people at the time? Was, Was this understood as a process? Well, no, I don't think it was. I don't think they they were old enough or experienced enough to reflect on that at the time. I think foreign student scholarship opportunities were an opportunity for young people who wanted to be educated to a higher level when there were not opportunities available elsewhere. They they simply weren't there. Um, The U.S. was prepared for them to pay for them to go, so why not? Um, certainly a lot of work's been done on that since and there's no doubt uh, in my mind and in terms of my own research for pioneers that um, the foreign student programs uh, and the smith Munt Act, for example, the, the way in which the federal government attempted to manipulate the Fulbright program to be part of um, information programs of the time um, was really... A I guess, about American imperialism. But these Australians didn't feel that, that they were being put upon in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said before, I, I really think it was um, Bill Fulbright who won out in the end because they, they really came back with an admiration and respect for American altruism. Um, mm-hmm. And they felt incredibly grateful for the opportunity that had been provided. But, I mean, does, does it also translate that into a, greater distrust or skepticism of of Great Britain in the aftermath of this? No, I don't think so. Well, they had had an experience of the U.S. They hadn't had an experience of postgraduate education in the U.K. Um, Most would have preferred to go to the U.K. if only because that degree would have been better recognized here Um, and and more doors would have opened, at least initially. But with hindsight, they're very pleased that they went to the U.S., obviously, because because it was such a positive experience. But they certainly weren't sceptical or, or distrusting of the U.K. That The U.K. was a very admired entity here mm-hmm. and had established very sound traditions of education um, that uh, remain respected in Australia and that remain valid and... Um, you know, have great merit. 
Okay. It was just that the it was just that the American experience provided it a new point of reference. It provided um, it provided a, a new point of reference that could be incorporated into an emerging identity um, that had been lacking until that time. Okay. Okay. You mentioned, of course, that they had a hard time um, reassimilating into the Australian university system when they returned. Did they seek any other um, positions in society to compensate for that? They did. Um, some some tried to go home, uh, back to the UK, uh, the US. Sorry, um, but that was incredibly difficult. It was very hard to get a green card at the time, um, mm-hmm. and probably ninety nine point nine percent were unsuccessful, or they were. They're in a position to go back when they had sabbatical leave from their positions in Australia. They would go back to the U.S. Um, to complete six months or a year of research work at an American university. Um, there weren't a huge number of options in Australia if you're an academic. I mean, you could teach or, or you could teach, really. You could go into the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, um, the Australian Council of Educational Research, um, there were a few options. Some went into private industry, um, and they were incredibly successful there. Uh, I think because they, those industries had the money to back the kind of research that they were prepared to do. Um, but I think part of that sense of feeling um, disappointed and jaded with returning was that there weren't a lot of options, mm-hmm. and they just really had to chip away at what was here. So they could break down some of the conservative expectations and establish. Um, so ultimately, what do they do then? If they're, they return with this new outlook on the world, but there's so few opportunities, do they become active in policy or in politics? Well, they couldn't do that until they'd reached reached a certain position. Um, yeah, it's true. A number were completely devastated by the experience of return. Um, some were able to slowly move move up the chain and eventually take up positions in the new universities and establish then establish American methods with ease. Mm-hmm. Some had to move away from academic academia entirely. Um, I only know those those some of those people through personal um, connections or chance meetings. I, they haven't been involved in the study as much. Um, but it was it was very very difficult. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it, and that's why I've described them, I guess, as pioneers because they really had to forge forge their way, you know, break break new ground and forge their way through a fairly entrenched. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, I guess the the the, final, the ultimate question is: Was it a success? Did the did the program work? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt that the, the American foreign student program was, was successful on, on many, many levels. On a personal level, um, the U.S. experience for the Australians is clearly life-changing, um, as much because it came at a time in their lives when they're creating their own personal and professional scaffoldings, um, and those scaffoldings were fundamental to the people that they became when they came back to Australia, and it gave them a sense of what they were capable of. It gave them an idea of what their professions in Australia were capable of. It gave them something to aim for. 
outside of the personal, um, I'd also argue that the impact was extensive. New universities were created in Australia and they were filled with young Australian minds who were taught with reference to American models, um, with American methods, with American texts, and by people who not only had an American experience but who had enjoyed that experience and wanted to share it with their students. So young Australians of the 60s who were taught by these returnees had their personal scaffolding shaped quite differently to those who were taught by returnees who had maintained an admiration for British models. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but those amongst the group who sought higher degrees were then recommended for scholarships to American uni- universities in opposition to British universities. So what had previously been an ongoing and self-serving system that reinforced the presumed superiority of the British degree came to include an admiration for the USA as well and later to develop an individual identity that included both points of reference alongside self-confidence, which is what I was saying before. Mm-hmm. So there's no doubt that the program was, was successful. I think from the American perspective, um, there is no doubt that uh, the 100 people that I interviewed, only one didn't maintain an admiration and respect for, for American altruism, American intellectual cultures, um, American society um, to this very day. So there's there's no doubt that the system was extremely, extremely successful. Mm-hmm. Well, Australia is one of those those countries that the Americans seem to feel they have a special relationship with on the basis of common heritage and experience. And perhaps in, in a way, you know, this program you know, fostered that amongst elites. Well, I would certainly argue that it did. There's been a lot of work that's been done in Australia on the way in which, well, the triangular relationship between Australia, the UK and the USA and and much of it has been focused on um, economics and politics and how um, events in those domains have impacted upon that relationship and caused us to turn or to include the US in our international point of reference. Um, but no work has been done on what's happened socially and culturally and how that, that change in directional outlook began to, began to occur. And I, I believe that this program is, is the beginning of that change. Mm-hmm. Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant. You know, I, I have to comment on the methodology you used in the book, you know, um, because it's so deeply tied to oral history methodology and oral, and oral testimony. You know, and you know that this is in many ways a very personal project for you, starting from yep. discovering your parents' letters in the attic. Um, yep. You make great use of personal narrative, either from letters or from memoir or oral testimony. And I, I want to ask is, how challenging did you find the process of incorporating oral history interviews and these other personal sources in crafting an analytical study? Well, there's, look, just to start, there's certainly been criticisms of the use of interviews for this work. Um, and some people have said that the subjective nature of the narrator's memories have been seen to overstate the significance of the American degree to changes that were happening in Australia at the time. Well, I, um, I would think that those are uninformed critiques in some regards that disrespect the, the idea of oral history. I don't 
well, you have to take those concerns seriously, I'd say, as an oral historian, but surely it's just a question of balance. How you document the interaction between a narrator's memories and the more scientific historical work that precedes it is surely the more important issue. And I would argue that the best oral histories are done when there's no other method available. Um, in the case of pioneers, no other work had been done on the impact of the American postgraduate experience on Australian social and intellectual cultures after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, the interviews were a crucial resource. I'd also argue that this methodology is particularly powerful mm -hmm. uh, when, it, when, well, when it combines the memories of a wide and discursive selection of players, players that in many instances had no knowledge of one another, who were drawn from a wide and disparate selection of courses and disciplines. Um, ultimately, the same language expression, in many cases memories, in fact, in some cases, factual errors, even resonated across all of them and I reckon I could say that they all contextualized the US experience and the impact of that experience in the same way which is a pretty con convincing point if you ask me. Mm -hmm. um, look, the people who contributed to this to this book came from over 70 different subject areas, um, nine broadly defined disciplines. Mm -hmm. They were awarded a great variety of distinguished honours, um, medals, uh, for contributions that made to them their field. Some of them occupy the most senior positions that they could today or, or have done in their careers. We're talking about really big fish in Australian society and intellectual circles that have had a lot of influence over the way in which their professions or the university departments or schools or their organisations have functioned. You know, if, if nothing else, that makes this kind of book and this kind of method all the more important, I would think. Well, yeah, it's a pretty important point. We're not talking about small fry. This group has packed a pretty convincing punch, and they're not stupid. They're, they're some of our intellectual giants, who I think I'm right in saying are sufficiently intelligent mm -hmm. to be in a position to consider their career choices with a reflective, considered, and intelligent approach. What they're offering in terms of memory may have 50 years in between it, but it's had 50 years to um, think very, very carefully over we're not just dealing with, with memory, we're dealing with, with personal analysis. And in the book, I haven't taken their, um, their, their narrations um, on face value. They've certainly been taken with a grain of salt, and it's very clear that in some cases they've reconstructed the past to suit an idea of, of who they are now. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the skill of the oral historian, is to recognise that um, those interplays occur in narration and that they also offer a great amount of context to a time and a place that that person is talking about. And that context is very much a part of, of telling history as well. That's, that's absolutely true. Couldn't, couldn't find a better way to say it. What would you recommend or would you offer any advice to anybody who might be interested in using oral history in their own work? I'd say go forth and do it. <laughs> it's a great it's a great way to do research. Um, uh, it's it's a wonderful way to meet people. Um, apart from just sitting in a library looking at books by yourself, it's it's a wonderful way to study and and to interact with your community. But uh, I think be careful too. I think always be aware that that people will shape what they're telling you um, subtly, often without self-awareness in a direction that suits um, 
the idea of, of who they want to be and how they want to present themselves. And so you, you just have to, as I said, be balanced. Be careful how you document um, that interaction I was talking about between their memories and scientific historical work. Sally, it's customary to give our subjects one last question that looks to the future. Um, what was about your next project? Where are you going from here? Uh, look, Bob, I'm working on a group biography of cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church within Africa. It's, it's very different to um, pioneers. Um, I'm, I'm looking at those who were appointed by Pope John Paul II. Actually, I'm traveling to Africa on Sunday to conduct further interviews for that project, which oh, I'm really excited fascinating. about. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking into their personal journeys within the church and the way they've used their position to the benefit of their countries during a period of, I guess you could call, post-colonialism with Africa that's been a pretty rough ride for them all. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I look forward to hearing more about it. And having a chance to talk to you about that book, too. Sally Newman, it's been a great pleasure to chat with you. Thanks Thank for you, joining Bob. us. It's been, it's been great to be part of the program. Thank you very much for having me. Not at all. It's been a great pleasure on my part as well. And thanks as well to all of our listeners. On behalf of New Books in History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute. Goodbye. You've been listening to our interview with Sally Ninham about her book, A Cohort of Pioneers, Australian Postgraduate Students and American Postgraduate Degrees, 1949-1964. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening to New Books in History.